Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Making people like you is a skill that anybody can learn. By reading body language and synchronizing behavior, it's possible to make meaningful connections with almost anybody in almost any circumstance. We appreciate and like people similar to ourselves, people we understand and people who are open. How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less is a book by Nicholas Boothman, a neurolinguistic practitioner who lives in Toronto, Canada. I spoke with Nicholas Boothman by phone from his home in Toronto and began our interview by asking him why individuals like some people, but not everybody. can understand people who have similar interests, but how about when you're in a foreign land and you see someone who doesn't speak your language and looks different, has different habits, but there's a liking right away? What goes on there? Well, we, we now know that, um, and there's a lot of research from Harvard to, to show this, we now know that we actually decide whether or not we like someone in the first two seconds of seeing them. And what we're actually responding to is their body language. We actually respond to people through, through we actually respond to their attitude, which is the, the first section of the book is about how to adjust your attitude to give a favorable impression. But the, 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 the first and main article that came out of Harvard, the headline was this, and this was their test. They discovered that um, students seeing a two-second video clip of a teacher with no sound came to the same conclusion about that teacher as students who spent an entire semester with that teacher. In other words, whether it be in a foreign land or your own land, we first respond to people, we make snap judgments about people in the first two seconds, and we make it about their body language. Essentially, we are hardwired to judge whether they're a friend or foe, a threat or an opportunity, this sort of thing. Well, what sort of things do we observe in another's body language uh, that we are not conscious about observing? We observe, and, uh, we observe and we process. Well, for example, you see a, a talk show who comes onto a, a, a TV show at night, um, uh, is, who is a very good example. They come on with, let's say, a playful attitude. And maybe they, maybe they come on and they're, they're waving their hands or they're pointing at people in the audience or they're clapping. Or they're, and in other words, they present themselves as playful. We, in, in, the, in the front of the book, I've got a section on what we call really useful attitudes as opposed to really useless attitudes. 
And what we see in somebody is their attitude. And what we find attractive is an attitude which, is, which actually attracts, and, or as opposed to a useless attitude which repels and, and, and drives people away. And, and funnily enough, one of the, one, I know that you, your, your radio is, is radio curious, one of the attitudes which we have found to be the most useful attitude is an attitude of curiosity. What does that attitude sound like? Well, it's what it looks like. It's, here's, here's the bottom line. We know now that in, in communication, in face-to-face communication, 55% of communication is body language, is what you see. 38% is the tone of your voice, and only 7% are the words we use. And so, basically, put, what it means is that when you're angry, you, you look angry, you sound angry, and you find angry words. And on the other side of it, for the, for, with a useful attitude, when you're warm, you look warm, you sound warm, and you use warm words, or, or curious. You, there is a look to being curious. There's also a sound if you listen to this program. Absolutely. Absolutely. But the first, the first couple of seconds when you meet someone for the first time, you don't actually... Um, you actually make your opinion before they've, usually before they've opened their mouth, except on radio. On radio, it's the voice tone which sets the attitude. You mentioned earlier something about us, uh, our species, being hardwired. Yes. How does that work? How does that fit into this? It comes from deciding whether some, we look at somebody and decide whether they're a, a friend or a foe or, or if we can trust them or if they're open. And it comes from, from for example, <clears throat> we talk about two kinds of body language, open body language and closed body language. Open body language essentially exposes the heart. And closed body language essentially um, defends the heart. In other words, if you're facing somebody, there's nothing crossed against your heart. If your if your heart is if your chest is pointing at the other person, if you can see your hands, we we tend to trust people like that. We also we also trust people who are congruent. In other words, when their body language, their voice tone, and their words are all saying the same thing, then we tend to trust people. It, it, a simple example is if, if we were face-to-face right now, and I said to you, whilst nodding my head from side to side, which indicates no, if I said to you, I think you're a really great guy, and this is a really great program, the truth is, you would believe my gestures before you believe my words. Well, what I'm trying to ask, uh, Nick, is why is that? Why do people believe the gestures um, when we have such a well-developed and well-enhanced language? Because... Voice tone and 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 gestures indicate your intentions before the words do. There was a study um, by Albert Moravian from UCLA, and he he his, in his study he determined in uh, I think it was called de, um, uh, decoding uh, inconsistent communication, and when when your communication is inconsistent, it makes you feel bad. It makes you feel uncomfortable. I think the best answer I can give you is that when somebody is incongruent or when their body and their voice are not saying the same thing, we just feel uncomfortable. What brought you into this kind of work um, after you worked in fashion and advertising? Yeah, I was, I was a, a fashion and advertising photographer for, for 25 years. I had, actually had studios in, in three different countries and, and worked all over the place almost on a daily basis. And, 
and, and the nature of that business is that you're continually working with people you've probably never met before or met very rarely, and, and they themselves, as a group, you come together, and, and most of the people have never met before. One thing I discovered very early on, that there were some people who could connect with anybody and, and, and very easily, and there were also some people that couldn't, couldn't connect with, with, with others and, and frequently couldn't even connect with themselves. And I have a, a background in something called neuro-linguistic programming, or, or NLP, which is a, a kind of a fancy way, a term for, for, for being able to study the structure of behavior. In other words, how people do things, not why they do them. So I used that to study how, how was it that some of the people that I was dealing with on a daily basis could connect with anybody, and how did they do that? Uh, Nick, tell us what you found in, in your studies. Yeah, I found... I found Essentially two things. First of all, that these people had, a, had a, a useful attitude, not a positive or a negative attitude, but just a useful attitude. The attitude was appealing. They were either warm or they were curious or they were patient or they were interested. And, and, and so, and I, and I now, and we know now that what the attitude carries is your body language, your voice tone, and your words. But the second thing that they had was that they were able to adapt. They were able to adapt very easily and very quickly uh, and, and frequently, just for a short time, maybe maybe 90 seconds or less, they were able to adapt to the people that they met. And, and you know, I, I mean, I, I've heard it many times from people in your business that, that you'll probably talk differently to the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, 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 than you would to, to, I don't know, Madonna or Sting. You do, we just tend to adapt to other people. In fact... In fact, it's called, we, we have brains which are called limbic, we have limbic synchronous brains. In other words, we have learned most of our behaviors by synchronizing when we were young with our parents, with our coaches, with our peers, whatever. And, and so we feel comfortable when we synchronize behavior with other people. So, so uh, and again, look around a restaurant. Look at the people who are getting on with each other. The people who are getting on are probably the ones who are sitting in the same way, um, talking with the same tone of voice, uh, maybe nodding at the same speed. It's probably happened to you. You've been with somebody and you, you shift weight from one side of the one elbow to the next and the person who you're with does the same thing so uh, so it's natural for us to synchronize our behavior and to synchronize our voice tone so i noticed that i noticed these people were able to adapt and i also noticed something else uh, again three of the, there are four sections in the book and it follows this so the first is the attitude the second is synchronizing but the third one is is that they have they know how to converse they have conversation skills or social skills something we don't teach anymore we teach our kids and our, we teach people how to have job skills and how to and how to go, and how to do all these jobs and do all this work but we actually overlook um, social skills basic social skills like how to start a conversation and and we know that and you know because of the business you're in you know that there are that questions are the spark plugs of conversation but there are two kinds of questions there are questions that open people up and questions that close them down and throughout this interview you have used open questions in other words any question that begins with who what why where when or how invites an explanation and then you that leads to conversation but any question that gets a yes or a no answer means that you now you've got to think of another question for example, did you go to the store, yes or no, uh, as opposed to where is the store, how did you get to the store, who was at the store, when did you go to the store, any of these things get a, question, uh, a conversation rolling. So we found that this group of people were also very good at starting and maintaining conversation. 
Well, Nick, I want to ask you why um, someone would want people to like them. But first, I want to tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Nicholas Boothman uh, from his home in um, Toronto, Canada. And we're talking about his book, How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less. Why should people care, Nick? There are two answers to that, and it's actually, it's actually, it seems that, well, the first time anybody asked me that in a seminar, I thought, that's a kind of odd question, but it, but it actually has two very interesting answers. The first answer is this, that when people like you, they give you their attention, and they give it freely. People are listening to your radio show right now because they like you. They're giving you their attention because they like you. But the second reason, which is, is really fascinating, is this, is that when people like you, they give you their favor, or they give you the benefit of the doubt. And here's what I mean. It's actually best summed up by a quote from a president of one of the software companies who said, when talking about somebody he'd been interviewing, a senior management, this was his quote. He said, because I knew immediately that I liked him, what I saw in his answer was enthusiasm and self-confidence. Had I not liked him, I would have seen arrogance and bluster. With the same words and the same presentation. Absolutely. With the same sensory input. This is all about, uh, all about explaining sensory input. We, we only do six things on a, uh, in our lives. We go out into the world and we have experiences through our five senses. The only other thing we do, apart from body functions, the only other thing we do from an evolutionary point of view is explain those experiences to ourselves and to other people. We, in other words, we process language. We put our experiences into language. And so, given the same input, different people take different opinions. I, I was talking to a friend the other day about somebody, about a, somebody we both knew. I happened to like the person we were talking about, and I said, you know, he's a very kind guy. The person I was speaking to didn't like him and said, you know, he's not. He's not kind. He's weak. He's a weak guy. In other words, same person giving off the same stuff, but being interpreted differently. And so I think that's a very important answer, that when people like you, they look at the, look at the, the politics. If you like the candidate, you see one thing. If you don't like them, you see something else. Your book says how to make people like you. Yes. But since we're all different and people observe one another differently, what do you have to do? What are those steps? Getting rapport with a group, which if you're talking about politics or if you're talking about sometimes in business, when you have to get rapport with a group, we take, we take another step because I've spoken about the, the three steps in the book. And, and, and I would like to say that we, one of the things we did find is that making people like you is a skill, and anyone can learn how to do it. But the, we've t- spoken about the, the three things, but the fourth thing we found, which is, we know, which is very important, probably one of the most important things is this, is that we now know that, um, well, we, as I said earlier, we, we experience the world through our five senses, but we use three of them mainly to navigate our way through the world, what we see, what we hear, and what we feel. We now know that just over half of the population primarily process information and filter the world and respond to the world by the way it looks. About a third of, of the population by sensory, uh, sensory um, uh, feedback, in other words, by the way it makes them feel. By, sorry, by physical sensation, by the way it makes them feel. And, and, the, and a small percentage, about 15%, by the way things sound. And all of these people are very different. When, and, and when you can discover which sense all the people in your life, whether it be your, your, your children, your parents, your employees, your clients, when you can figure out which sense they use to respond to the world, you can get a deep rapport with them. And so how do we figure out what sense they're using? 
give you, I'll give you, a, I'll give you, so I'll tell you some some quick tips. In fact, the last quarter of the book is about how to do this, and you can actually do it very quickly. And as you you probably know, there is a test in the book that you can take that will give you an indication. But let, let me just tell you, for example, why it's important. Let's say I'm a travel agent, and someone comes into my travel agency and says I want to go on holiday. If I can figure out immediately, let's say that they're kinesthetic, that they re, that they respond to the world by the way it makes them feel. I would say to them, I have a great place for you. The sand is soft, the water's warm, you can wiggle your toes in the, the Caribbean, and the beds are comfortable. In other words, I'd tell them what it felt like, because that's how they process their world. If they were auditory, if sound was their most important, uh, it was the way they respond to the world, I would say to them that I have a great place for you. It's quiet, or you can hear the waves and a few gulls, and it's away from all of the noise of the city. In other words, I'd tell them what it sounds like. And if they were visual, I'd say, hey, look at the pictures because that's how they take information in. And so, it, as, as you asked, it comes down to how do we tell who's what? Well, first of all, these three different groups of people, they look different and dress differently. Um, as you can imagine, visual people tend to be the ones that dress to impress. Uh, they tend to be impeccably dressed. They wear, might wear jewelry. They, might, they, they take great care of the way they look, and, and they live in their world is tidy. Around them is tidy, impeccable. They buy beautiful objects and surround themselves by that. Uh, kinesthetic people tend to favor being comfortable. They like to dress for comfort, maybe for texture. And, and auditory people are somewhere in between. They tend to dress to make a statement when they dress. These three types of people speak at different speeds. Visual speak, people tend to speak quickly because they think in pictures. And when I say think in pictures, it's if you know where the milk is in your refrigerator right now, you just have to make a picture to do that. And that's as good as your pictures probably get. But visual people think in pictures, and so they speak quite fast. Um, auditory people uh, tend to think in sound, so they speak a little more slowly. And kinesthetic people are the ones that speak pretty slow pretty slowly sometimes, and also add lots of detail because putting feelings into words takes longer. Um, they use different vocabulary. Visual people would tend to say things like, they'll use visual vocabulary, they'll say things like, from my point of view, if we focus on this, it's a bit hazy right now, and do you see what I'm saying? Uh, auditory people will use sound language. They may say things like, sounds terrific, tell me more, does that ring a bell? And, and kinesthetic people will use physical language, like they may say things like, we have some stumbling blocks, but we'll have to get over them and sort it out and hang in there, and I can't put my finger on anything concrete. In other words, they, use, they make a physical world in, the, in, the, in their vocabulary. And there are many, many more ways of doing it. But imagine when you can figure out the people of your life, which sense they use to respond to the world. You can communicate with them in a different way to each one. By uh, synchronizing your behavior with theirs. Well, you, you, you synchronize your body language and voice tone, but then, for example, I, I have five children, okay? I have at least one of each, and I, 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 I react differently with, with each of them, with the, with the kids who are feeling-based. I talk to them about the way things feel. With my son who's, who's visual, I talk to him. We talk about the way things look, basically. And let me give you an, an example. This is quite easy to figure out, I think. I was listening to two politicians talking on the radio not too long ago, before the Canadian elections. One of them said, and they were talking about running for leadership, one of them said, I'm leaning heavily towards giving it a shot, which is kinesthetic language. Sure. The other one said, um, now that we've seen the possibilities, we can look towards the future. That's visual. That's two very different kinds of people. And, and to connect with those people, we would use their system. We would talk to them. For, look, my wife is kinesthetic. 
I'm auditory. It's enough. We've been over 30 years crazy about each other. It's enough if she gets annoyed with me, she'll say, Nick, you're not hearing a word I'm saying. You're not listening to me. And she has my attention because she's right. If she said to me, can't you see how I feel? Not sure I can make the logical leap, but I really can't. But if she tells me I'm not listening, she has my attention. And in the same way with her, I say, Wendy, I feel bad when this happens. I talk to her about feelings. And so your question was about how do, how do we appeal to groups of people? And how do we get rapport with groups? Well, you know, the great communicators, uh, the greatest communicators in history have maybe been uh, Buddha, Christ, Martin Luther King, uh, Churchill. And what did they all have in common? They spoke in metaphor. I do, I do, I lectures, lecture to thousands of school kids. And when I go into the schools, uh, kids who are getting ready for jobs, going out looking for jobs, I tell them how to make the interviewer like them. But I say, I ask them, who's your favorite teacher? And they'll say, da, 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 whoever. I say, why? How come? How do they do that? And they say, you know, they tell us stories. The point is, the people that use metaphor and stories appeal to all three groups. Because when you talk in metaphor, the visuals can see it, the auditories can hear it, and the kinesthetics can feel it. That's how to appeal to large groups, is to talk in metaphor. Can you give us an example? Absolutely. Almost anything we say uh, in our daily lives. If I, it, well, look at the, the example of Martin Luther King, since I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. That's all metaphor. We know he hasn't been shinnied up Everest or anything like that, but we know what he means. When you say, the Lord is my shepherd, we know what, that, what you mean by that. We use metaphor in, in everything. And, and to take metaphor even further, we can, use, we can use stories to illustrate points. The most, profound, the, uh, the most profound speakers on the speaking circuit, and I'm on the circuit, start with stories. People remember stories much more than they remember abstract concepts. That's the whole point about language. We use metaphor to explain things that we don't really understand or that, that would could take paragraphs. You know, if, we, if you say this guy's a locomotive, or this guy's like an eagle, or this guy's like a lion. We know exactly what you mean. If I say that, that, I, that I had a woman the other day said to me she felt like a seething cauldron, I understood immediately what she meant. Well, Nick, you're approaching the uh, answer to my next question, which is more on a one-to-one basis, and that's how to make the interview like you. The in- how to make the interviewer like you when you're there for an interview. You, the, the simplest way is to synchronize body language with the person. Um, Can you give us some examples? Is that moving back and forth when they do? And it, it's, it's doing the minimum. Ne- Listen, if, if I walk into to an office and, and somebody's sitting there with their legs crossed and their hands on the armrest of the chair, if I sit the same way, that's what friends do when they're together. You tend to synchronize, and it tends to be comfortable. So do the same thing if they make a move, if they move their, their weight from once. But, um, uh, I mean, if they put their finger in their ear and scratch it and you do the same thing, then you're mimicking them, you're making fun of them. But when, and you know something, you'll probably find yourself doing it naturally at some point, that when a person moves, you tend to move. Yes, you, you synchronize the major body movements of theirs, and you synchronize their voice, their tone, their pitch, and their volume of voice, because it's comfortable to them. You know, something goes through their head, it says, I don't know what it is about this person, it's something I really like. Well, no kidding. <laughs> you like them. Well, Nick, how does all of this apply to an emotional connection? Well, you know, underlying all of this, whether it, whether it be making connections in business or, or in your personal life or in friendship with friends and socially, one of the underlying points in all of this, and it's especially true in emotional connections, let's say, let's say you're out dating 
or you find yourself back on, on the dating circuit. The, what underlies all of this is the hunt for common ground. And once you find common ground with somebody, then the pressure tends to be off, especially in dating. Um, I just did a, a, a one-hour TV show on, uh, up in Seattle a few weeks ago, and it, and it was about what do you do when you're out dating. Well, it's about the hunt for common ground. Find something you both have in common, and the pressure is off. And you do it by using the four steps of the book. First of all, you present yourself with a useful attitude because people initially in those first two seconds will respond to that. Secondly, synchronize as soon as, as soon as you can, synchronize your body language and your voice tone very gently, very respectfully, and very subtly. And then use your conversation skills. As soon as you can get somebody else talking, the pressure is off you, and you do it through open-ended questions. And fourthly, during all of this, Start finding out which is the sensory preference of the person you're with. And all through it, I mean, throughout the book, I've got tips on hand, how to do the proper handshake, how to greet somebody properly, wh how to handle eye contact, how to handle uh, uh, what you say, how you open people up, to, uh, and how you get free information from them when you meet them for the first time. But, but it's essentially about the hunt for common ground, because once you've found common ground with somebody, you have a really, a really binding starting point to start creating and expanding your, your rapport. And it, will, it can easily be done in less than 90 seconds. Before we close, uh, tell us about the proper handshake. Well, the, th the point about a handshake is that because it's a pattern, because it's something we do almost without thinking, the advice I give about a handshake is that it shouldn't be a surprise. Because if it's a surprise, it becomes confusing. If someone gives you a, a limp noodle of a handshake or a bone crusher of a handshake, it stops you in your tracks and, and makes you start to assess the person where you normally wouldn't do. A handshake should be firm. I, I put in the book, it's just like if you were ringing the bell for room service on, in one of these European hotels and just pull down the... It just, it just a firm, polite handshake, not too, we, not too weeny and sloppy and not too, not too bone crushing. Well, Nicholas Boothman, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we do close this time, I'd like to ask you uh, to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, I, I have a, a wonderful book, a wonderful author I've, um, I'm, I'm, I'm revisiting who is called uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, a Colombian author. And I've just finished reading his book, Love in the Time of Cholera. Um, which is a masterpiece. In fact, he is an author who uses all five senses. You can see his books, you can hear them, you can feel them, you can smell them, and you can taste them. And uh, I, would re I've, I just finished Love in the Time of Cholera and A Hundred Years of Solitude, both of which are classics. In fact, I think he got the Nobel uh, Prize for Literature for A for, um, uh, Hundred Years of Solitude. Well, Nicholas Boothman, thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Barry, it's been a pleasure. It's been, uh, been wonderful. Thank you. Nicholas Boothman is the author of How to Make People Like You in 90 Seconds or Less. The books that he recommends are Love in the Time of Cholera and 100 Years of Solitude, both by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious 
at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.